Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it uh, continually guides us and teaches us and brings us into a fuller understanding of who you are. We pray this morning that as we open it and we spend time in it, that that's exactly what you would do, that you would draw us closer to you, that we'd see more fully the beauty of who you are. We pray this morning that as we open your word, that your spirit would move in this place and that you would guide us and lead us, that you would apply it to our hearts. We confess without you moving and doing that, we are hopelessly lost. So we pray that you'd meet us in this place and guide this time. We pray everything that's said and done here this morning would be pleasing and honoring to you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Many of you may know, I know a lot of you do, some of you may not know, but uh, my first degree, my undergraduate degree was in architecture. And for about seven years uh, through seminary and before seminary, uh, I practiced architecture and did that for a while. And I was very uh, blessed that in my first real job, first job I worked at any length was at a firm in Dallas, Texas. And the man that I worked for, his name was Robbie Fuchs. And Robbie was a brilliant architect who's a wonderful designer, did uh, great big custom houses, just beautiful homes. And he was a very, very gracious and kind man, very gracious to me in my abundant ignorance at the time. And uh, as I started, I knew very little and, and he was uh, patient and kept teaching and, and he was a sweet man. He'd, he'd take me to job sites when I first started. I'd only been working about a year and he'd take me out and he'd show me things and he'd point out things uh, that the builder had done wrong and say, no, no, we drew it this way and they did it this way. And then he'd say, now here's a point where the builder fixed where we messed up. We did it wrong. And then he fixed us. And, and so he'd show me these things and he'd, he'd always tell me there's a lot of learning that you can get by walking around these sites. Don't get caught up just drawing your drawings and never seeing what's going on here. And I remember one day we were, we were out there and he was telling me about roof plans and how you draw roof plans. And he said, basically we never get them right. They're never going to build it the way we draw it. And he said, the reason is they know a lot better than we do. He said, the framers are out here. They've framed roofs, a lot of these guys, for 20 years plus, and they know exactly how to do it. He said, so you should come out here and you should talk to them. And he said, you should ask them questions. And he looked right at me and said, because they will know how to, they know how to do it better than you ever will. And so come and talk to them. And so what he kind of built in as I worked for him and as he gave you this, this picture of everybody had a job and they were all equally important. And he kind of instilled a humility in you. Don't you ever think because you drew the plan that you know better than everybody else. Everybody's got a job to play here. And there's an order in which it goes together and how it gets put together. And, and we need to, to remember that. And that's true down to the way you do drawings. You do them in a certain order. You do a site plan and then you do a framing, a foundation plan and a framing plan and all the things kind of in the order in which we do it. And so I was thinking about that and those lessons that that Robbie taught me as I worked for him. And he, he said those things and pointed me to those. And it kept, it kept coming to mind this week as I thought about what Paul says here in 1 Corinthians 14, the way that our, our worship and as we come together, the way it should be ordered and the way people have different roles and how those go together and how we should respect those and the way God has put us together. And so as, as we look at that this morning, I think that's a, a, a good analogy as we look at some of these things we're going to talk about. Because what we're going to look at as we finish 1 Corinthians 14 is this order of how we should do things when we come together in worship. And as we look at this, it'll help inform why we do some of the things here the way we do them, where those convictions come from. And there's different people who see that different ways, even within the church. But hopefully it'll help us see why we do things the way we do in our gathering and as we as we come together in worship. And so this morning, there's a couple questions I want to ask and 
and look at. And the, and the first is, what are we uh, seeking to do as we gather together in worship? I want that to be the first question we think of. And then secondly, how has God ordered it so that that happens? Right. God has given us some things. And, and we talked about this a little bit last week because we were in the beginning of 14. And so we're going to see it a little differently today. And I'll just remind you, as we're looking at this and, and as we're going through this, this section really comes at the end of chapter 14. Uh, this section of 14 goes back to really chapter 11 through 14 is the picture of, of our worship and how it looks. And Paul's been t- saying a lot of things about how that goes together. You know, remember, this is a letter he wrote to a very young church in Corinth that he helped start. And they had all kinds of issues. And in that is, is how they should gather and worship. And so that's kind of what we're looking at this morning and how we're going to go at it. Uh, what are the what are we going after as we as we gather? And then secondly, how has God ordered it so that that happens? And then lastly, we'll just end up with why that's important. And so let's let's start there with what are we going after when we gather together? And uh, I want you just to look with me at verse 31 here. And this is all throughout. I'm going to kind of make a connection back to what we looked at last week. But look at verse 31 there. He says, uh, for for you can all prophesy one by one. And then listen what he says, so that all may learn and be encouraged. And what I want us to start with when we think about what happens as we gather together, we want to see a, a learning and an encouragement. You see this all the way through this chapter and even through the book. We've seen this over and over. Paul keeps coming back to this, that as we gather together, we're, we're gathering together to worship, but we're also gathering together as a body of believers to grow in our understanding and to learn and to be encouraged. If you go back to the beginning of uh, chapter 14, if you look at verse 3, it's just one page back, you'll see there at the bottom, he says, uh, on the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people, and then he says, for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. Or then if you look at verse 5, right below that, he says, now I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. And the one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues. And we talked about this last week, but here's his reason. Unless someone interprets so that the church may be built up. And you see the same thing in verse 12. He says, strive to excel in building up the church. And then you get to 17, 18 and 19. He says, if you're not building up the church, just be quiet. Don't don't do it if it's not helping to build up. And so when we think about what we're doing as we gather together, we want to see that we're gathering together to encourage one another and to build up and to see God more fully. And that happens in worship and, and hearing God's word and praying and all those things. And we talked a little bit about that last week, but I want you just to see that as, as, as over this. And we'll talk about how we do that, the order that God's given for that to happen in just a minute. But I want you just to get the big picture. When we gather together, we're seeing a building up and encouraging of one another, seeing God more fully. But that's not all that it says here. And that's not what that's all that's in this text. And I want us to think about this. And and sometimes uh, when we get into philosophy of how we do church, how we do our gathering philosophy of ministry and and depending and all you got to do is go visit 10 churches, pick any 10 churches around here, pick five of them. And you'll see that they have very different philosophy on what this should look like as we gather together. And I think this passage kind of helps give us a good picture and some guidelines on how that should work. And, and what I mean by that is if you go to some churches, what they'll say is you'll go in and they'll say, well, we've designed our gathering to be for the unchurched or the unbelievers. We want everything we do to be comfortable for them. And so we've we've gauged it towards them. Or sometimes churches will say, no, this is this time is for the building up of the church. 
And so we're going to do everything for those in the church. And that's what this is about. And if the unbelievers, well, they're fine to be here, but it's not for them kind of thing. And, and there's a whole range of that, depending on what church you go to. And if you ask their philosophy, you'll get a whole range of things. And so what I want us to see this morning, and I think what we see in this text is it puts us somewhere in between that. It, but, but I want to be careful how I say it. I do believe that the primary uh, thing of us gathering together as believers is we are being built up and we are worshiping and we are encouraging one another that that's primary. And so if on one end, you've got churches for the unchurched, for the non-believer. We're going to do everything for them. And whatever there is, the other side is it's for the building up of the church. If that's the case and this is the continuum, we're, we're somewhere over here, right? That's, that's where we want to be. We want to be building up those that are here, but I don't think that's all we want to do. And I want to show you why I say that. So look at with me at verses 23 to 25. We hit on this briefly last week, but I want to bring out some other things we didn't really get to. And so verses 23 to 25 say this. If therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are out of your minds? But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsiders enters, he is convicted by all. He is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed. And so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. So just let me catch us up from last week. If you weren't here, there's this going on in the church in Corinth. There's people prophesying, all these people speaking at the same time and all this activity going on. And Paul says it shouldn't be that way. It shouldn't be confusing. It shouldn't be lots of people speaking at the time. It should be done orderly where we can understand it. That's what he's hitting at here. He says, if an unsider, an outsider or, or an unbeliever, and by outsider it really just means an uninitiated person. They don't really know a whole lot about what this is. And they come in and it's all crazy and out of order and people are all talking and all these things. He says, they'll think you're crazy. And we talked about that a little bit last week. But what I want you to see this week as we look at that is, is the, the expectation that Paul has here. And it's this, that unbelievers will be coming into this gathering. Right? There's an expectation there that we'll, we'll invite and we'll bring people who are unbelievers or who have questions, who are not quite sure what they believe about who Jesus is or the Bible or those things. And so what I want us to see is there should be an expectation of unbelievers being invited, whether you're friends or family or people, you know, you should invite them and we want them to be here. And so the picture I want you to see is the second part. Yes, this is for building up of believers and us together and learning, but it's also uh, to bring uh, others in to hear truth and to see what happens here. Right. Paul says what happens is they come in and they hear the truth and then they fall on their faces and they profess God and they see who he is. And so the picture that you see that Paul's describing there is evangelism has just taken place and conversion within this gathering. And he expects that and he's saying that that should happen. And, and so I want us to, to think about that as we think about as we look at this today, that it's not just building up for the believers, although that is primary. But there is an expectation that we would have unbelievers in our worship service. And so I want you to think about that for a second. I said what happened there was evangelism. They hear that their hearts are pricked. They see their need. They fall on their face. They worship God. When we talk about evangelism, evangelism simply means uh, uh, spreading the good news, telling what God has done through Jesus. And we are all called to do that all the time, every day. If you are a believer, that is your job. 
It's non-negotiable. That's part of being a Christian. You're to be telling people. And I would just simply say, if you understand who Jesus is and what he's done for you, you want to do this. If you get it, there's no like, oh, maybe I will. Maybe you should be wanting to go and tell people. But I also want to be careful when we say evangelism. Evangelism is clearly explaining our need and who God is and the way that he's met our need in Jesus, that he's come and taken our sins and he's opened up the way to have a relationship with God and clearly explaining that and calling people to repent. That's evangelism. Conversion, when they see it and they put their faith in God, that's God's work. You don't control that part. You're called to be faithful and telling and explaining and, and calling people to repentance and showing them what it says. But God has to do the work in their heart for them to believe. And so sometimes people will act like uh, successful evangelism as you go out and then these people come to faith. Evangelism being successful as you did it. That's what you do. And then God does the rest. And so we always need to make sure that we see that. Right. It's God's doing in that. And so we want to see that as part of when we gather that that we're inviting friends and family and people. We want this time to be uh, understandable and to be able to come in and for them to hear. And so I I think I say this often, you know, sometimes you think you say things a lot and maybe maybe I do or maybe I don't. But I, I just simply want to say if you're here today and you have questions about who Jesus is, or about the Bible, maybe you just think, oh, I can't really get with the whole of it, or I have questions on that, or you don't really understand how Jesus would be our Savior, or why we would even say that, or any of those things. I just simply want to say, I'm thrilled that you're here, and I want you to be here, and I want you to feel open to come and talk to us and ask questions, and I want you to feel open to be able to say, I don't know about that. I'm not sure that I am with you on what you said today. We desperately want people to be here. And so if that's you, you are welcome to be here, and we are so glad that you are. And if that's you, I also would say the reason why I'm so thrilled that you're here is simply this, because God is real, and he has revealed himself, and this is his word, and Jesus can save you, and it's the greatest truth there is in all the world. And so I desperately want as many people that will come and hear God's word to come into this place. And if you're a believer, that means I want you to invite your friends and your family. I would like nothing more to be filled up with lots of people to have questions about who God is. Because I truly believe we have the answers of who he is and the way he's revealed himself. And so we want to see uh, that when we think about what we're doing here, yes, it's for the building up of the body of believers, but it's also we want people to come in. We want to invite those in that don't know him. And so... How do we do this? That's the second question. How do we do this in the way God's ordered it when we we gather together? You know, last week I really answered this question, but in a much different way than I'm going to look at it today. Last week I was talking about we don't want to overemphasize our emotional response to worship. We want to be thinking, considering what God's done and how he's revealed himself and his word. And so I would say all that is true. Yes, let's yes. Amen to what we talked about last week. But I'm going to talk today a little bit more about the order in which we do it. God's given us an order and how this is to work and what it's to look like. Now, there's some flexibility within that order that he gives us, but there's some things he clearly tells us. And so how do we do this? How do we order this time when we come together? Look with me at verses starting verse 26. We're going to read 26 to 33 there. What then, brothers, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue or an interpretation Let all things be done for building up. 
If any speak in a tongue, let there be two or at most three and each in turn and then let someone interpret. But if there is no one to interpret, let each one keep silent in the church and speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and be encouraged. And the spirits of the prophets are subject to prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. And then look at verse 40 there. This is kind of a summary at the end. But all things should be done decently and in order. And so what we get is that God has an order in which things are to be done. Right? He's giving us all this, this real practical wisdom on that should be done in a certain order and a certain number of people. And we shouldn't just be all at the same time. And it should, should have some order in how we do it. And so when we think about that order or the structure of what it is, I want us to think about what that is. We go back to my analogy at the beginning of going out to the job site. And, and you're building a building and everybody has a job and an order and different things. And you've got to do it in a certain order or it won't work. Right? Like if you just say everybody show up on the same day, plumber framer, roofer, everybody, that would be a disaster. Nobody would be able to do anything. There's a certain order in which things have to be done for the building up. Same thing Paul's saying here. There's a way that it's supposed to be done. And so when we think about that, usually the analogy of the building, you've got to start with the foundation, right? There has to be some foundational things that are in place that we build on. And when we think about gathering together here as a body of believers, the foundation is sure and it's very clear and I'll just go to uh, Acts chapter four, right? Peter before the council in Jerusalem, it's the religious leaders of the day and they're telling him to stop preaching Jesus. And he says this to him, he says, this Jesus is the stone that rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone and there is salvation in no one else. And there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Right? And so what Peter says to the religious leaders of the day is you're trying to build religion and church and gathering together and you've left out Jesus. And what he says is Jesus is the cornerstone, which is literally the foundation, so that the key thing of where you build everything from. And so what Peter says, and he's even using our analogy, is the foundation, the cornerstone, the key thing is Jesus and his gospel. That's where we start and so when we think about the foundation of what we do and how we gather together, it's always going to be in the name of Jesus and he is always going to be lifted up and he's always going to be central. His gospel is always going to be right there as the foundational thing. And so that's the first part. So when we start with the foundation, it's Jesus. It's how all scripture points to Christ and what he's done. And so that's the first thing. But then the second thing I want you to think about is, is what he says here. And, and just as we think about if Jesus is the foundation and how do we know him and how do we see him? And what we would say is, is, is the second part, I would say, is, is God's word. Right. Jesus says, uh, if you abide in me and my word abides in you, he uses it interchangeably. Right. Like if you're abiding in me, it's going to be my word. That's how you know him. Or, or John one in the beginning was the word and the word was was with God. And the word was God. And then a few verses later, it says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. It's Jesus. And so the ways that we know Jesus and the ways that we see him first and foremost is through God's word. And so when we think about the foundation first, it's Jesus. And then the way we see him is through his word. And so you see this picture. You even see it in what Paul says. Look at verses 37 and 38. He says, if anyone thinks that, that he is a prophet 
or spiritual, he should acknowledge the things that I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. Right? Paul's saying this letter I'm writing you and the things I'm telling you, this is God's word. God has inspired this. Paul had a unique ministry. When we talk about apostles, big A apostle in, in scripture, what we're talking about is those that were eyewitnesses to the resurrected Jesus. And he gave them a very specific um, ministry. God inspired their words, and that's what we have, and that's what Paul's talking about. So if you're going to prophesy or you're going to say anything or you're going to do anything in the church, you better make sure that it's in accord with God's word. That's our, that's our rule that we, we go to. Jesus is the foundation, and then the way that we see Jesus is through his word, and so that's the second thing we would see. But then look at verses 20, uh, or look at 29. Right. So he's, he's setting aside these, this order and the way we go about it. In verse 29, he says this, uh, let two or three prophets speak and then let the others weigh what is said. And then he goes on to talk about the importance of God's word down at the end of this section and the, the things that are there. And so I want you to think about how that works. Now, we have to be careful when we get into these passages. What we need to do is, is what I often say is we read along the Bible. We're reading through Corinthians. We're going through the verses. We're seeing what it says. But we also want to read across the Bible. And that is we want to see what, what the Bible says in all of the Bible about these different subjects. Right. And so when we read in Scripture and it talks about weighing what is said and, and, and guarding doctrine and how we're to do that, God sets that up in a very specific way. Right. Titus, chapter one, Paul's writing to uh, Titus and he's telling them about elders and leaders in the church. Right? And he says, this is what it looks like. This is what an elder looks like. And it goes right hand in hand with weighing what is said that he's talking about here in first Corinthians 14 and in Titus one nine, it says that an elder or a pastor must be able to give instruction and sound doctrine and also rebuke those that contradict it. Right. And so the picture we see here is that different people may speak and have a word or say something, but then it will be weighed and we'll make sure that it's in accord with God's word and it's all pointing to Jesus. And so there's an order in which he gives here. And so what you see there is 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 this uh, teaching that's very clear in what Paul writes and in different ways It all goes together perfectly. You see the same thing in first Timothy three. And it talks about an elder or pastor it says he'll have the ability to teach. Right? It gives a whole list of things, but, but right there in it is that he will have an ability to teach and to, to guard doctrine and to hold it up against God's word. And so when we start to see the way this is built up and the way this is ordered is one, it's Jesus is the foundation, God's word. And then God puts teachers and, and, and pastors and elders in place to guard doctrine and to point people back to what God's word clearly says. And you see that in our gathering. That's what it's supposed to look like. And so that's the picture that starts to emerge here. But then uh, as you see this, there's there's uh, the order in which Paul gives this. This is where we've got to really think about the way Paul orders things as, as he writes. You know, there's a huge I don't know if you caught this at all. Chris read this passage to us a minute ago. You get to verses 33 to 35. It's kind of like the elephant in the room. Did he just say that women can't speak and they should ask their husbands at home and so forth? And you go, what? Right. It's kind of where you're half listening and then you hear that part and you kind of did he just say that? And so it's kind of just sitting there. But I want you to see the flow of the passage and all this that we know about the way God has ordered this. And I think it really makes sense when we see clearly how it comes together. So verse 26, you have a, a kind of overall statement. This is all one thought that Paul is following through. And the statement is everything you do should be for building up the church. 
Right. And then verses 27 and 28, he gives practical constraints for speaking in tongues. He says you can't all do it at the same time and it should be orderly and there should be an interpretation and you should do it this way. And so he gives you practical things on how it builds up in the church. And then you get to verse 29 and he says we should weigh what is being said as a word of prophecy. Giving this teaching and saying this, he says we should weigh and we should be careful. And you, you, you can see that in Paul's other letters coming under the heading of elders in the church weighing doctrine and, and guarding against it. And then so you get verses 30 to 33 and there's constraints on speaking prophecy, how that works and how we should go about that. And then lastly, what you get is constraints on the evaluation of prophecy in verses 33 to 35. This is all coming together. And so with that in mind, you get to 33 to 35 and it says, for God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. And as in all the churches of the saints, the woman, the women should keep silent in the churches for they not permitted to speak, but should be in submission as the law also says. And if there's anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. And so you go. That's that's the one when Chris was reading a minute ago, you go, he's just going to skip that, right? We'll just pretend like that's not there and just keep going. But but I think when you look at the statement and the flow of of the teaching and what he's saying, he's talking about in the the realm of interpreting uh, prophecy. That when a word is spoken, that there's being a, there'd be uh, those that weigh it and then speak and then talk about it and those things. And and what the picture is in Scripture is that role in the church is an elder. And Paul's given us this picture elsewhere that an elder is to be male. It's not to be a female, it's to be a male. And his reason is, and he says it here, he says there that uh, uh, they're not permitted to speak, but should be in submission as the law also says. If you go and you read first Timothy chapter two, you get Paul saying the same thing. He says men are called to be elders and there's there's an order here. And then he says, and the reason why is that man was created first and then woman. Now, people don't like that. And I, and I spent a whole time on a sermon not all that long ago talking about that. And so I'm going to point you to that because I did it fuller in there. And so I'm not going to sidestep it, but I want you to go to that and, and wrestle with that if you have questions on that specific thing. But what Paul's saying, let me just give you the real brief explanation here, is that men and women complement each other and they have different roles within God's church and within our marriages and the way we interact And I've said this over and over, and please hear me when I say this. It is not a matter of worth or value. Men and women are both created in God's image. One is not better than the other. They're just different. And so God says, I have different roles and in different places, and it's not an issue of value or worth. In fact, a couple chapters before, it was in chapter 11, Paul talks about, uh, he says this, 11.3, but I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, And the head of the wife is her husband. And then it says, and the head of Christ is God. And and I talked about that a few weeks ago. And what that what that shows us is that Jesus and God are both God. They're completely co-equal. They're both fully God. But it says that Jesus submits to the father just as a wife submits to her husband. Right. And you see his reasoning there that they're not different or it's not one. I'm sorry, they are different, but it's not one is better than the other. They're both equal. They're both equal, but they have different roles. And and I want you to even to think about that. I'm just overwhelmed when I think about that. When he says, ladies, submit to your husband. Wives, submit to your husbands as Christ has submitted to the father. You're playing the role of Jesus in that way. 
You're getting to point to the way he has perfect submission to the father. And then he says, husbands, love your wives as uh, Christ has loved the church. So, guys, you get to play that role in the way you love your wives and you serve and you care for them and you lead. And so it's not an ugly thing. It's a beautiful thing that God has put in place. And so you get that coming out here. He says, wives, in this way, in weighing these matters of teaching in the church, you're to be silent. That's not a blanket statement that women can't talk ever in the church. In fact, a couple chapters earlier, he said women can pray and prophesy as long as they're doing it in the proper ways. Right. And so what happens, though, is we read that and we say things like that is so regressive. Oh, I can't believe the Bible says things like that. You know, in Paul's day, women uh, couldn't speak at all in any gathering. And here he's saying they can pray and prophesy. What he's saying is very radical on both sides. Right. It's radical to us today because we go how regressive in his day. It was radical because people were going, he just said women can speak. They weren't even allowed to do that. And so when we start to place it in the context and place it in the full of God's teaching on the subject, you start to see how that works. Right. And so there's this picture that Paul's kind of tweaking the people of his own day and he's tweaking us today. And and both is because God's truth is universal and it's timeless and it all it will always upset somebody along the way. Always. And so you see that even here. And so you see that picture in it. And so I just just real quickly before we move on a couple things. Uh, when the when they gathered together in Paul's day, what would often happen is the women sat on one side and the men sat on the other side. Even husband and wives didn't sit together. They were separated by sex. And so when you think about even practical applications of what he's talking about, if a wife is supposed to ask her husband, we talked about that in chapter 11, and have submission to her husband. And so if there's prophecy going on and the wife's sitting over here and the husband's sitting over here, I'll use Gil and Bonnie. They're sitting here together. But if they're separated and Bonnie has a question for Gil in the middle of the gathering and she goes, Gil, you know, she's calling out to him across the church. It would it would go against everything he's saying here about orderly worship and not being uh, uh, I just lost my word there, but <laughs> just the, the disruptive. That's what I'm looking for. It would be disruptive to the time. And so what we have in that picture is just a real practical application too. that. Ask them when you get home because you don't want to yell across the room to them. Right. And so part of that is just cultural that we miss. But then real briefly, just lastly, before we move on from this, and I want to make sure I always say this when we come to this. Uh, I've heard people take this text and take it to horrible extremes. And they say things like, well, women should just ask their husbands at home and should never open their mouth in public or something ridiculous like that. Uh, and it's I'll be honest, it's just disgusting. And it's this real chauvinistic kind of like I'm the man and I decide what goes and you never say a word to me and that kind of attitude. That's not what this is talking about. It's in a very specific way within the body in which that's not what it's saying. And so I just want to simply say, men, if you hear guys talking that way about their wife or or to their wife or behind their back or just about women in general, call them out. You are called to lovingly lead your wife as Christ has loved the church. There is no place for that kind of attitude. Right? Your wife is made in God's image just as you are, and she is perfect in value and worth before the Lord, the exact same as you, and there's no place for that. And so when we take it to bad extremes of what the Bible's not saying, then it becomes ugly. But when we hold it the way Scripture says, it's a beautiful thing that God's given us. 
And so I just want to make sure we don't miss it in that way. So lastly, one other thing that's going on here, I want to make sure we see this in terms of how this is ordered and it leads to what we were talking about. And it's it's just this picture that's in verses 23 and 24, right? He says if they come in and they're out of order and it's crazy, they'll think you're nuts. He says, but if you're doing it the way I'm saying and God's words clearly being proclaimed and it's understandable, they fall on their faces and they see that God's there. And God's honored and he works and he draws people to himself. And so what I would say is when we consider how this works, right, this is for the building up of the body. But we also want unbelievers in our time here and we want them to be welcomed. And so what we do is we don't change everything we do for the unbeliever. We welcome them in and then hopefully we clearly explain what we're doing so that they know what's going on. Right. That's why we do what we do every week with communion. And we explain it and we talk about why we do it this way and why it's for the believer and what it means. And we do that every week so that anybody that can come in can understand what's going on. And so what happens, though, is this. And this is the picture you see in verse 25. When we do that, when we when we do it in the order that God's given us and the way that he's given us, unbelievers can come in and they see the people of God hearing God's word and worshiping and being built up. And it's one of the greatest uh, pictures for evangelism there is. True worship. Actually seeing the people of God gathering together and loving one another and worshiping God is a beautiful picture for those that are searching. There's a quote in your bulletin. He always says it better than I can. But Dr. Tim Keller says it this way. God wants the world to overhear us worshiping him. God directs his people not simply to worship, but to sing his praises before the nations. We are not simply uh, not to simply communicate the gospel to them, but to celebrate it before them. And so we're not going to change everything we do, but we're lovingly going to invite people in and then we're going to celebrate who Jesus is before them. We're going to clearly proclaim his gospel and who he is, because that's the way it goes out. Faith comes through hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. We talked about that last week. And so we're not going to hide those things or change those things. We're going to profess those things and invite people to come in and be a part of it. It's a beautiful picture that he gives us. And when that happens, what you get is a worship, true worship. But you get an evangelistic worship because that is just beautifully attractive to somebody sitting there when real worship is taking place. When God's word is clearly being explained, when Jesus is being made central, that's what happens. And so as we end here, I want you just to think about why this is so important, right? That we would worship together and build one another up. but We'd also want to invite people in and doing the way that God's ordered it and all that goes with it. And it's it's just simply this. Can't say this more directly or clearly. We have the greatest truth in all the world. That the God of the universe came down and loved us so much that he would take our sin and give us his perfect life. Why would we not want anyone and everyone we could get to come and hear that? How can we not gather together and celebrate that fact? I read this week, like if if we're not excited about gathering together to worship God, there's something wrong in our hearts. How can we not be excited? And so whether you get it, whether you've placed your faith in Jesus and you know he's your savior, 
And, and if that's the case, then this is a wonderful time to gather together and to think about those things and to press it in and to praise him and to learn more about him. Or if you're not, if you're here today and you don't know that, I'd just say this. The God of the universe loves you. He wants you to be here and he wants you to hear the truth. And so the picture is this and why it's so important is the gospels for everyone. We are all hopeless sinners without Jesus. We don't have anything to offer without him. And so we desperately need him. And we desperately want people to be here and to hear that. And so I just pray that that's what we would be as a body. We would be so excited about gathering to hear from God and to praise him and to encourage one another. But we'd be so excited to invite people to come and hear that with us. So let's pray. Lord, we thank you. We thank you for the glorious picture that the gospel is. That you love us even when we're unlovely. That yet while we're sinners, you've died for us and you've come to us and you've laid your life down and you've provided a way that we can know you. We pray that that would always be the central focus of our time here together, that we would always be seeking to make much of you. And every time we gather together, I pray that you'd bring many people that don't know you, many people that are searching and are in need, that have questions and they would be welcome here, that they would enjoy being here with with your people and that we would love them well and we would point them to you. We pray that you would work in all these ways and that we would be faithful to the way you've called us to do it. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.